we are studying uh, the, the book of Acts, the early church, the apostolic church, and uh, we're in the midst of a series on that. Last time we were together, last Sabbath, we talked about the Apostle Peter, and as we outlined, we're going to be speaking on the Apostle Peter. Today, we're going to be addressing the Apostle Paul, and those are the two main protagonists, the two main characters in the book of Acts. Of course, there are other people involved in the book of Acts. You think of you know, Silas and Barnabas and all the other uh, lesser-mentioned individuals, but the main two characters are Peter, and he's the beginning of the book of Acts, and then transitioned over to Paul. And of course, we're gonna, after that, we're going to be building. Now, these two messages, looking at Peter and looking at Paul, are simply preparatory for our messages about the first Jerusalem council, which will be coming up next time we're together, which is two Sabbaths from now. Uh, Elder Don Williams will be here next Sabbath. But two Sabbaths, we're going to be looking at the first Jerusalem council. And then following that, we're going to be looking at the second Jerusalem council. But I want to establish a clear understanding of what the church was like in its earliest stages. Now, last Sabbath, as we mentioned, we looked at the Apostle Peter. And, of course, he didn't always start off as the Apostle Peter. He was the disciple Peter. And before that, he was just Peter the fisherman, right? He he was a regular run-of-the-mill, a very, very Jewish uh, culturally and heritage, religiously very Jewish individual. Uh, Grew up uh, not as the life of a scholar, not a life of privilege and learning, but he was a He was a fisherman by the Sea of Galilee, and he had a brother named Andrew, but of course Peter was the more notable and vocal of the two, both called to be disciples of Jesus, followed Jesus throughout his ministry, and during that time had some spectacularly great moments of faith and some equally spectacular failures. But all in all, the Lord restored him to his leadership position within the church. Jesus leaves, and on the day of Pentecost, Peter starts preaching that message, and we see Peter, Peter as a very vocal, very prominent uh, leader amongst the, the early church believers. Now, oftentimes, you will hear Peter mentioned in the same sentence with Paul. You know, oh, the early church, like Peter and Paul, and just kind of throw those names around. But today we're going to see that Peter and Paul had two very different life experiences. They were very, very different individuals. Though they served the same Lord individually and personally, they were very, very different individuals. And we're going to bring that out to the surface, have a contrast between Peter and Paul today in preparation for our look at the first and the second Jerusalem councils. But before we do any of that study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I would ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit to be here as well not just in a general sense, but specifically, Lord, teach us from your words the thing we need to know. Help us to understand your mission for us and help us to learn the lessons of the early church as we strive to be your final church in these last days of earth's history. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were to describe, if you were asked to describe in a sentence or a phrase or just even a single word, the early Christian church, early apostolic believers and the, their community, their faith, the, the church that God established right there at the day of Pentecost, what words would you ascribe to them? What would you say about them? Okay, home churches, that's a good one. What are some other things? This is, we can just talk like people, it's okay. What are some other things? Unorganized, okay? They had to be corralled a little bit, that's good. What else? Human beings, thank you. You're headed to where we're going today, absolutely. Community, okay. 
Sometimes you hear community, unity, you think of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you think of power, you think of zeal for mission, you think of all together in one accord, you think of these kind of things. And the early church was a wonderful, beautiful place, but they were still human beings. Let's be very clear about that. And perhaps no one experienced that, if you want to call it, human side of the church more than the Apostle Paul. Now, today, again, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, and the first thing we need to know about the Apostle Paul is he didn't start off as the Apostle Paul. He started off as Saul, the enemy of the church. Now, where Peter had been with Jesus from the very beginning, in, in fact, even before Jesus' ministry, remember that Peter was a follower of John the Baptist, and that he was pointed, uh, John pointed to Jesus, and Peter went off with Andrew, and they, they were there the entire time, and after Jesus has left now, they are seen as leaders in the early church. But we don't encounter the apostle Paul, or who is just now Saul, until Acts chapter 7. So let's go there. Acts chapter 7. This is long after the day of Pentecost, long after the church had been established. The work was going forward. In fact, it was growing so much that a dispute had arisen between the Hellenists and the Hebrews and the distribution of goods amongst those united community of faith believers. And they had appointed in Acts chapter 6 these seven deacons to serve. One of them was a young man by the name of Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. And he's brought before the Sanhedrin, before the leaders of the Jewish religion. Of course, Jesus was a Jew. He was called to the Jews. But he was to be the savior of the Jew and the king of the Jews. But the Jews rejected their own Messiah. And now here are people after Jesus has died and been resurrected and ascended, still preaching Jesus, much to the consternation and frustration of the early Jewish leaders, okay? the unbelieving Jews. And so he's called to address these people, and Stephen gives a long, and we don't, don't have time to read through it, but if you read through Acts chapter 7, he gives this long history, detailed history of the Jewish nation from their being called way back in Abraham all the way to the time of Jesus Christ and their rejection of the Messiah. And he goes down, we're going to go to verse 51, and we'll see the end of this sermon, and we're going to transition into an introduction to Saul. But in Acts chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 51, Stephen says boldly to these stubborn Jewish leaders, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now, pause right there. To say that someone was uncircumcised means that they're not really Jewish, right? He's basically calling them spiritual Gentiles, even though you might be genetically Jewish. I'm guessing that doesn't go over well, right? You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, as your fathers did, so do you. He's like, you're the same people who destroyed and persecuted the prophets who told about Jesus coming, and now that Jesus has arrived, you've delivered him up to death. You've killed him. In fact, go on to verse 54. What was their response to this? And this is going to be critical. When they heard these things, they were what? Cut to the heart. There was conviction laid upon them that this man, Stephen, was preaching the truth, that the history of Israel, as he had outlined it, was accurate, that Jesus, perchance, was the Messiah, and they were being brought to their mind that they were the destroyers of the very one they were supposed to promote. They were cut to the heart, but in contrast to the people who listened to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, who were also cut to the heart, 
and believed and repented and were baptized, these individuals, when cut to the heart, did what? They gnashed at him with their teeth. Right? They hardened their hearts. Verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And their response to that, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears as though that would help the truth not come in, right? And ran at him, interestingly enough, how? With one accord. Fascinating, the parallels between Acts 2 and Acts 7. The same basic message is presented, one by Peter and the other by Stephen, but both groups were Jewish people who had been party to the execution of Jesus Christ, both of whom had the truth come home to them. Bible records that both were cut to the heart. One group repented and believed and were brought together all in one accord as believers. The other group rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that rejection, drew together in one accord in resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that both Christ and Satan, and allegiance to both, will draw people into unity. Just one for God and one against him. Trust me, Satan understands the power of unity and wants to see division where there should be unity and unity where there should be division. We'll come back to that in a later time. But here, it introduces this character later in verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. First time we see an introduction. He's not the Apostle Paul. He is Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now think about this. They were already cut to the heart with conviction, but they resisted the Holy Spirit, just as he said they always did. They resist the Holy Spirit, work against that conviction, and that, that, that turns violence in them, right? They don't just let Stephen go. They want to silence him, kill him. They lay there, and they're like, hold our clothes, Saul. And Saul is there witnessing this. He's not picking up the stones, but he's holding on. He's consenting to it. He's there with them. He's okay with it. But apparently there's some conviction even in his heart. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you become violent against it. And this is exactly what we see happen. Look at chapter 8 as it just simply continues. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except whom? The apostles. Now, he's introducing these geographic planters because this is going to be important later on. Of course, you recall from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that the church was supposed to work first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. They had worked in Jerusalem. They had presented the message to the leaders now of the Jewish faith, They had rejected it, so immediately the persecution opens up and they're scattered to Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. We're thinking of Peter, James, John, and the others. They stay in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. But then he goes back in verse 3, As for Saul, 
he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So he's literally going door to door, hunting down these Christians, or as they're called so far, followers of the way. That sect of Judaism that accepted Jesus as their Savior. He wants to keep the faith pure. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He was consenting to the death of Stephen. And he wants to root out this insurrection, this rebellion, if you will, door by door, person by person. So he goes knocking on doors, dragging men and women off to prison. He was a terror to the early church. A very different experience than the Apostle Peter. But what's amazing is that though all of this had happened, the Lord still had big plans for Saul of Tarsus. So go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 just picks up on this story still. Verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and of course when we think of the disciples, we're not talking about just the 12 disciples, we're talking about all the believers, all the followers, went to the high priest, and notice what he does, and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice this. He didn't just want to do it on his own. He goes and he wasn't even sent by them. He went and requested a mission to go root out these believers in Damascus. Let me go there and get them. He was itching for a fight. This guy, I believe, is wrestling seriously with the Holy Spirit. As we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus himself indicates that. So, in verse 3, he gets these letters to go persecute the church. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he adds this line. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He can read his mind. He can read his motives. He knows what's going on. He's like, this is really difficult for you. I know there's conviction work in your heart. You were there listening to Stephen's speech. You were cut to the heart, yet you're trying to compensate and go the other way and lash out in violence. This is difficult for you. It's hard. Why don't you surrender to what you know is true? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I'm real. I'm the Messiah. And you've been struggling with conviction. You've been kicking against the goads. Verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now think about this. He was on his way to go persecuting the church, to go door by door, hunting people down. Jesus literally knocks him off of his horse, blinds him, tells him that thing you've been wrestling with in your heart is true, You are just overcompensating. You actually want to surrender to me. It's hard to kick against the goads. And he blinds him, shocks him, and Paul basically sits down for three days, can see nothing. 
He's far away from Jerusalem now. He's on his, on his trip. He has no food, no drink, no nothing. Just kind of sits there thinking, wrestling. What happened? What does this mean? And conviction begins to turn to conversion. And Saul is now a follower of Jesus Christ. Now watch this now as it continues. Now, verse 10. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. By the way, if the Lord ever calls your name, that's always a good thing to say. Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, which, by the way, is you, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Yes, Lord, I will do your bidding. Is that what he answers? No. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Surely you mean another man. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So you would like me to go to this person, deliver myself to him, and say, In the name of Jesus, I have come to you. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name, and notice this now, before whom, who's his primary target, Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Okay, so he's going to be speaking to Gentiles, to rulers, authorities, to kings, and also to the children of Israel. But his primary work is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. By the way, had that particular thing happened with Peter? Yes. Peter had a direct encounter with Jesus where he had, to, he had conviction and he was sorrow and he had to be re-brought back in into the ministry, right? And then Jesus showed him the things he would have to suffer if he would follow to the end, and he says, follow me. Basically, he does the same thing with Paul now. Paul, you need to, Saul still at this point. It's hard to kick against the goads, but I'm the truth now, and now I'm going to show you, if you follow me, this is what the end is going to be. Ananias, get up and go work for brother Saul. So, he goes and he's obedient to the word. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Must have been awkward to get that out, you know. The Lord Jesus. Remember, anyone who claims your name gets in trouble. But he goes up, Brother Saul, I'm here on behalf of Jesus. I don't know if he was like, man, I hope this works. Who appeared to you on the road as you came? has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now this is an important little chronological thing. He's there at Damascus. Damascus was his destination to go persecuting the church. They've heard that he's on his way to do that very thing, as Ananias just testified. I know what his mission is, and he's not here to be helpful. He says, don't worry, I have called him, go help him out. So now he's sitting there in Damascus, and he spends some time with the disciples there. These are not the apostles. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. Recall that? They had not spread out. 
But these are believers, disciples, like Ananias and perhaps others. We don't have names, therefore. And Paul, Saul spends some time with them. And now look at verse 20. The very first reaction of a truly converted person is to talk to other people about it. Okay? The very first response of a truly converted person is to express their faith to others. They can't be quiet about it. Same thing happened in Saul's experience. Immediately, verse 20. He preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard it were amazed, and notice what they said. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, was Paul a Jew? Absolutely. He would later go on to say, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. He is, I, I am a, a, as Jewish as you can possibly get. And here he is speaking to the Jews about Jesus, and he's confounding them because I know, he's basically, you can imagine, he's like, I know every argument you're going to say, and here's the scripture to back it up. And he starts lining it up point by point by point, and they can't argue with Paul. Paul is brilliant. He is a scholar par excellence. He, can, he is good with oratory. He knows exactly what the argumentation is. And the people, the unbelieving Jews, can't get around this guy. And he's, they're frustrated with him. Paul is a mighty helper. You know, honestly, we could hear the Jewish people who were happy when he was persecuting the nude Christians would probably have preferred Paul just died on the road to Damascus. But instead, he switched sides and was now using that same zeal that had been once launched against the Christians for Christ against them. And they did not appreciate this. And things did not go so well for him as a result. Now, watch this now. I believe that it's right here in between verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 9 that we need to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Please go to Galatians chapter 1. And it would seem that here is something. Now, of course, Acts is written by Luke, and it records the history of the early church. It's not meant to be a complete biography of either Peter or Paul. Its purpose is to tell the story of the church. Okay? So here, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 9, it's, it just goes on about what, Saul then did after that, but apparently there was something in the personal life of Saul that occurred at this point in his history that Paul talks about when he talks about himself in Galatians chapter 1. We'll start with verse 11. He says, but I want to make, I, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. He's like, I got my gospel directly from Jesus. He didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem and, be, and sit at Peter's feet and the other apostles and say, teach me these truths of God's word. No, no, no. Jesus came himself and taught Paul. Now watch this. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, 
being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He wasn't, I wasn't just a run-of-the-mill Jewish guy. I was a leader, a zealot, and I was out to kill. But, verse 15, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, notice he's like, it apparently had been the plan of God all along. This reminds you of Jeremiah. Before you formed in the womb, I knew you, and I've set you apart to be a, a minister, a, a prophet to the nations. Here, the same thing. Paul says, that was my experience. I just didn't know it yet, and I'd been fighting against it this whole time. Which, by the way, there's no mention in the Scriptures, any inspired writing, no reference of Paul and Jesus during his Christ's earthly ministry ever having any interaction. However, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of their cohorts. I'm guessing he was very, very well aware of the ministry of Jesus. It wouldn't be too hard to speculate that perhaps he saw him or was witness to some of them, but he was hardening his heart the whole time. Stephen gives the speech, and he knows he's in the wrong, but he hardens his heart even farther, right? But apparently, according to Paul, he said, the Lord had designed that I was going to be his minister from a long time ago. It just took me a long time to get there. Had to literally knock me off my force. Had to straighten me out. Had to really put me in some deep thought. But now he goes on to the church in Galatia and explains, verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, which, by the way, shouldn't that be the ministry of all Christians? To reveal Christ in us? To reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now, that's not to say that Paul never met with the apostles, never met with Peter, and then they did have their rendezvous. They'd meet, but not immediately. The very first thing he did was start preaching, and they confounded the Jews, and then apparently he had a time away. Verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to where? Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. So he took a time out. And how long was he gone? Well, verse 18. Then after how long? Three years. I went up to Jerusalem, and I love it, to see whom? Peter. Now we're going to see in Acts chapter 15 that Peter is not the officially recognized leader of the church, but he's the unofficial spokesman. Now, Paul, after three years now away in Arabia and Damascus, says, okay, now I need to go. The implication is that Christ, as he talks about in Acts chapter, uh, he said, Christ revealed it to me, this gospel. The implication is he spent three years in this wilderness alone, not, but just formulating and talking with the Lord, and the Lord revealed to him his gospel, gets his mind clear, and now he's ready to go meet the brethren in Jerusalem, which brings us back to Acts chapter 9. And I like how Luke records this time away. He just flies right past it because it's not pertinent to the early church at this point. Again, the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. It's simply recounting of the church's activities. Verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, which is about probably three years, (laughs) the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, that's an interesting thing. The Jews plotted to kill him. These were not the believing Jews. These were the unbelieving Jews, the ones who had sent him on his mission to go kill people. Basically, either you're going to kill for us or you're going to be killed by us. Paul is in a difficult stance. Okay? 
But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So he escapes death. The disciples who know him kind of helps him out there. And now he goes on to the new believers. Uh, I mean, his new church family. He goes to Jerusalem, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Now he's in a very difficult spot. He has left all behind, all of his associates, and they all want him dead. So he runs to his new church family, and they're afraid of him. And they don't believe he's a disciple. Can't go that way. I can't. He's stuck. Now how does he get out of this bind? Someone vouches for him. Barnabas, interestingly enough. And you recall Barnabas just before the, the, uh, the, the death of uh, Ananias and Sapphira? It was Barnabas who had given everything, sold his property, his land. He was a full, sold-out Christian now. And it was Barnabas who introduces Saul to the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, going, coming in and going out. So they took him under their wing and hung out with him and, and stayed with him. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, the significance of that, I'm not sure, is... is It doesn't say it directly there, but Saul is from where? Tarsus. So where have they sent him? Home. (laughs) You just just go back home. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's continue. Acts chapter 10, by the way, Acts chapter 10, 11, and 12 highlight something that we studied last week, but it's good timing to bring it back up to remembrance. Acts chapter 10 is the story of Cornelius having the gospel preached to him, and Cornelius, of course, is a centurion, a Gentile. And you would think that, aha, now the Lord has someone to send to him, namely the apostle Paul, who the Lord himself said, I've set him apart to be a minister to the Gentiles. But who does he send to Cornelius? Peter. Is Peter willing and eager to go on this trip? No. Why? It's not because he's afraid of death. It's because he's afraid of defilement, right? Peter has no problem. I mean, he wants to walk on the water. He wants to slice off ears. I mean, I'm sure that's not what he was aiming for, but that's what he hit in the garden. You know, he, he has no problem. Men, he stands up on the day of Pentecost. He's, he's not timid. His issue isn't death. It's defilement because he's being called to go to a Gentile's house 
And you don't do that. Okay? Peter had to be talked into it by the Lord himself, right? With the sheet coming down, rise and eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. And he does it again, and he does it again. The Lord's instruction, don't call unclean that which I have called clean. And he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about people. And, of course, the Lord is leading Cornelius' dispatch of people to Peter's house, and they have this divine appointment, if you will. And even as he goes downstairs, the Lord has to say, now, don't fear anything. Basically, don't be rude to these people. Just listen. And walks them through the whole thing. And, by the way, when Peter gets there, the very first thing out of his mouth, he says, you know what we're doing is unlawful. But the Lord dragged me here kicking and screaming. (laughs) So I'm here, right? And you notice that Peter didn't go alone. He took some of the Jewish friends with him, some of the Jewish believers, to make sure everything was up and up and on copacetic, everything is good. So he comes back, and look at chapter 11. Verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and... Look at the grievous crime. You went in their house and ate their food completely skipped by the whole thing and preached the gospel to them. Let's get to that later. You ate with a dirty Gentile? And Peter basically spends the rest of the, uh, the next few passages saying, no, 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 I'm with you, man. I thought the same thing. But I had this dream, and the sheet came down, and the Lord had to drive me. And lo and behold, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them the same way. They're good people. I was shocked just like you. But there's good Gentiles, and they have a heart for the truth, and The Lord has shown me that... Now, let's go down to verse 70. What does he say? If, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Notice he's saying, in my natural humanity, I would have been right with you. But God trumped that. He overruled. And he demonstrated that he's good with the Gentiles too. And only then do we find, verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Okay. But Acts 10 and 11 is all about getting these Jewish believers in Jesus to go and witness to the Gentiles, to be okay with that. Okay. Now again, the... The question should loom, and this is going to be answered in two weeks, so don't expect it in two seconds, but if the Lord had called Paul to be the preacher to the Gentiles, then why did he spend all that time and energy wrangling Peter to go to Cornelius? Paul had already been out with the Gentiles. He's he's a He's a multicultural guy. He's a multilingual guy. He's more of a cosmopolitan. He's okay with it. He grew up as a Roman citizen. This, is, this isn't fine for him. But Peter was a Galilean, right? He doesn't... Ugh. So why send Peter instead of Paul, the one you raised up specifically to go preach to Gentiles? Why send Peter? Let that ruminate. We're going to come back to it in two weeks. Okay? 
which you have to return to church, which is what you should do anyway. I'm just giving you a little added incentive, okay? Now, of course, Acts chapter 12 continues. Uh, Peter now, uh, we'll start with verse 1 just to review, but this is very important to build up about Paul because we're contrasting Peter and Paul. Verse 1, now about that time, about the time Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some of the, from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So Peter gets locked up in prison. He's basically an, on death row, going to be facing the same fate that James had faced. But Peter has an advantage over Herod. And that is he has a praying church family behind him. Watch this now. Verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by whom? By the church. These people loved Peter. And when Peter was arrested and faced the death sentence, they prayed earnestly, continually, nonstop, constant prayer for Peter. And in response, the Lord provided a mighty miracle and Peter, now, think about this. Had Peter been told by Jesus the way he would die? Yes. That he would die a martyr's death. John chapter 21. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. And I'm guessing as he's facing the footsteps of Herod here who just executed James and he's headed off to prison, the words of Jesus from John 21, they'll take you where you don't want to go and stretch it. He's thinking, this is it. Here I come. But the believers were earnest, they're praying, and apparently the Lord had more he wanted to do with Peter. So he provides a mighty miracle in response to the believer's prayer, and he's freed. He comes back to the believers, and they rejoice. Oh, Peter, we're so glad to have you back. That's wonderful. It's powerful. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Now, Acts chapter 13. By the way, Acts chapter 12 is basically the last point in the book of Acts that we really see Peter be the main character. He's going to make another appearance in Acts chapter 15, at the first Jerusalem council, but now the baton switches to Paul. But I want you to see something in Acts 13, 14, and 15 as we wind down here, that Paul had to face perhaps more, and I would, I would suggest far more than Peter had to deal with. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and it lists them off. Verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, which, of course, we know that work was to be a minister to the Gentiles and to speak to kings and to the children of Israel. And having fasted and prayed and laid, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So now Paul and Barnabas are officially recognized by the believers as representatives of God and preachers of the gospel, they lay hands on them, ordain them to this ministry, set them apart for this work, and send them on their way on their first missionary journey. Okay? And we go down to verse uh, 13. Watch what happens. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Paphilia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That's a little side note, but it, nothing that Luke puts in the book of Acts is there incidentally or accidentally. Okay? This would later become a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. John, apparently the work gets hard and he wants to go back home to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are left uh, without him. 
And then later, Barnabas would say, let's get the band back together. Let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I don't travel with quitters. You keep him. And they have a big fight, Paul and Barnabas, over John Mark. Apparently, John Mark had to have a little growing up in his life. But apparently, it worked out because we have the gospel of Mark after his conversion. It's interesting. After his maturing. Anyway, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Pisidia, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And this very much sounds like Peter, except it's Paul. (laughs) Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he unloads a sermon which is almost identical to the one that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. It's almost identical to the one that Stephen gave in Acts chapter 7 before the Sanhedrin. And now, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is giving the same message. He's speaking to the Jews about their rejection of Jesus, giving the history of their nation, and giving scriptural references to back it up. Now, verse 42. Let's skip down to the same chapter. You can read from verses 14 to 41 this sermon that the the Apostle Paul gives. But verse 42 continues, what's the result of this? So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Who was begging? Where were the Jews? The Jews went out. Oh, that was a good Sabbath message. The Gentiles were like, that wasn't just a good message. That was life itself. That was brilliant. That was powerful. We want to hear it. Can we come back next Sabbath to hear it again? Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So Jews and proselytes were also along this group. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And this is going to be key in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with what? Wouldn't they be like, praise the Lord, look at all the people coming to... No. They saw all the people and they realized they weren't coming to hear them. They were coming to hear him. And the same spirit of envy that boiled inside of the Jewish leaders when Jesus was here is now stirring up again when Jesus' apostles are preaching the same message. So what happens? They were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the thing spoken by Paul. Now, it's interesting. They were the very ones who a week earlier had invited him to speak whatever he wants. But now that all the people liked his message and came out, they stand up and start heckling him and contending with him and opposing him. Yes, but this. And, and they start pushing back. Verse 46 Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Those are some big, bold words. It's like, of course the Jewish nation had their moment. I was part of you, and I was with you, but I was rejecting Christ. 
you either need to convert or get out of the way. He said, it was great. It was great that you had this opportunity, but you killed Christ, and now you're persecuting us. The light's going to the Gentiles. You have deemed yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Then he quotes Scripture to prove it. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, verse 48, look at the different reactions. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. So, hooray! Woohoo! And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but... The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they get pushed back from the Jewish non-believers, you know. That's okay, shake off the dust. We're going to go to Iconium. Very next chapter, watch verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they, were together to the, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and spoke so that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was, what's that word? Divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Now it should be no surprise as we go into Acts 15 what the issue is. And this is where we're going to leave off today. But we're going to start with verse, chapter 15 and introduce the first Jerusalem council that we'll study next time we're together. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to where? Jerusalem. To whom? To apostles and elders about this question. Now think about it. We've already been told what the apostles and elders think of the Gentiles hearing the message of God. They weren't big fans. But the Lord worked and worked and worked and got them over it, right? And these people, watch what happens in the, in the ministry of Paul. He'll go somewhere and preach to the synagogue, and people will believe Jewish people don't like his message, and they certainly don't like his popularity, so they start to poison people's minds against him, oppose him, distract them, confuse them, and people are divided. Well, I know I don't know whether I should believe the Jews, if I should read Paul here, who used to be one of them. Ah, I don't know, it's so confusing. They don't know what to do. And now this whole added going to the Gentile stuff, whew. And Satan finds a way to poison the ministry of Paul so that it can't really get traction. A great thing will happen, then a bucket of cold water, shh, so it has to go somewhere else. A great thing will happen, shh. And the thing that keeps coming back is this Judaism idea. Do you have to be Jewish first 
and then you can accept Christ? Or can you go directly to the Gentiles with the grace of Christ and preach it without ever having to be a ceremonial Jew? And it seems that the Jewish non-believers found a way to taint the minds of the Jewish believers against Paul. Because there was a natural bias against Gentiles. Cultural heritage upbringing. That Satan knew, I can, I can work with that. And he uses these non-believers to infect and poison the believers, and the believers are sitting there, I so where Peter had the warm embrace of all of the believers, the Jewish believers, right? Paul was viewed at a distance, a little skeptical, a little questioning, a little, I don't know. He was being threatened by death, so he had a more violent opposition because the unbelieving Jews saw him as a traitor, so they wanted him dead. And the believing Jews weren't sure what to make of his work with the Gentiles, and so Paul really didn't have anywhere to run for home base. And this is going to become critical as we look, especially later on, at the second Jerusalem Council. But important lessons to learn. Oftentimes I think we assume that the early church was just happy and harmony and everything was great. It was at times. But the early church is just like the last day church, chuck full of people. And each one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I believe that Satan has learned a valuable lesson over time, that the way to handle the church is through dispute and division. His, basically, his, his working method to conquer the church is to divide and conquer, to pit people against each other, to squelch the work of the gospel, to lay cold water on the whole movement, get people distracted and discouraged and tempted and persuaded and confused. Squelch the whole thing out. Friends, don't think for a moment that Satan isn't the same Satan today. Just as much as the same God we serve as the Satan is our enemy. And his work is always by deception and by division, and he wants to hinder the work of the church. And it will take superhuman effort to overcome our natural inclinations towards division and backbiting, disputing, and gossiping. But God wants to raise up a last-day church who learns lessons the first-time church to finish his work on the earth. So we have much to be thankful for, and I would urge us, let us be a praying church family, not backbiting and gossiping and hurting, but lifting each other up in prayer as we all individually grow in Jesus Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.